Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this very special event. My name's Kate Goodwin and I'm the curator of the architecture program here at the Royal Academy. This evening forms part of a series we've been running for about the last 18 months, which is conversations with senior Royal Academician architects. And I probably should take a moment to clarify exactly what a senior Royal Academician architect is, because it might seem like a rather strange term to you. But it's when a Royal Academician reaches the age of 75 and they retain their full voting rights as part of the governing of the Academy, but can no longer serve on committees, which can sometimes be quite a good thing, you might agree, and they can't serve as officers either here at the Academy. And what it also does is it enables us to elect, or it enables the Royal Academicians to elect new Academicians into their place as well. As I'm explaining the details of what it is to be a Royal Academician, I might also destroy your attention to the diploma work at the back of the room here. On election as a Royal Academician, each of the artists and architects are asked to donate a work that becomes part of our permanent collection here. And I'd like to thank my colleagues in the collections department, particularly Morgan Feely, who very kindly brought this work down, which is a lovely drawing of the Warrington County Courthouse, which you can have a look at after tonight's discussion. I know that many of you probably do have the biography there, which John has put together very, very nicely. But I thought I might just take a couple of minutes to, to run through things. Um, John completed his studies at the Regent Street Polytechnic in 1951 and then went to work for the London County Council's Architect Department. It was while working in the Housing Division of the Architect's Department at the LCC that he met his future partners Bill Howell, John Killick and Stan Amos. Um, and this partnership was very special. And I know that John would like to talk further about the practice this evening, so I'm not going to say anything else, but I would draw your attention to, I think, what is a very well-worded um, piece on the practice written by Choban Cantacuccino, which is written on the, the biography that you've got there. Um, this evening we'll focus on projects which were of particular um, significance for the practice, but focusing on projects which John um, worked on himself. I won't say any more about this because I think that, that John and Elaine are going to take this over. But before handing over, I would like to say that I'm feeling particularly confident that we've found someone very um, very good to engage in conversation with John tonight. Elaine Harwood is, a, um, is an architectural historian with English heritage and has particularly good and extensive knowledge of particularly the 20th century architecture. She's been behind the listing of some of the most significant buildings across the country and in 2003 she published a book called England, A Guide to Post-War List of Buildings. And she has a really um, wonderful attuned understanding, I think, of the work of... Um, um, of Hal Killick and Hal Killick, Partridge and Amos. And um, so without further ado, I'd like to um, ask you to join me in welcoming both um, John Partridge and Elaine Harwood this evening. We thought we'd begin at the beginning because I think the story of how John became an architect is particularly unusual and says a lot about the post-war period. It's also the only question we've rehearsed. Have we rehearsed it? Oh. That's rehearsing, that was, yeah. <laughs> in the war, John Forshaw, who was the architect of the London County Council, set up a training scheme for architects because he thought there wouldn't be enough architects to deal with the reconstruction after the war. I was working in the hospital service of the London County Council and discovered this it's not generally known that the London County Council actually ran 70 hospitals in London, including Hammersmith as a teaching hospital. I applied to join this training scheme. It was quite interesting. It wasn't really like the old uh, articled system, but we had lectures in the office, which were uh, organised by Regent Street Polytechnic. We worked half part-time and then uh, had day lectures. These were in the first year or two, but later on it became much more Regent Street Polytechnic Evening School and we worked in the day. I was working in schools division to first of all, which was quite interesting because um, they were doing research on comprehensive schools of 3,000 pupils and thank God they never built them, you know. But it was uh, a very interesting way, I think, of uh, becoming an architect, it, not the ideal way, 
But uh, when it was Regent Street Polytechnic in about the third or fourth year, we used to pay, I think, something like a pound for the year's tuition, which was three days a week. One of those years was John Summerson on history, which is a fairly good buy, I think. And he often used to say to us, I'm doing this lecture in Regent Street, and I'm doing it at the AA as well in the daytime. Why don't you all come round there instead so I can only do it once? Uh, so we all trotted round the AA and nobody batted an eyelid. Those were the days when uh, education was a bit more permeable, I think, is the expression, than it is now. So that's really how I qualified. We took the external examination at the RIBA, which was a final examination as well. It was interesting, you had to take your own drawing board and the design exam lasted a week and you had to sketch out something on the first day and keep to it. You weren't allowed to take it out of the room, but for the next four days you had to come back and work it out. I remember I did a concert hall. It must have been an awful thing, you know. I mean, how on earth you could design a concert hall under those circumstances, I don't know. But this is in the Henry Florence Hall. I'm fascinated to know, A, did you have any sort of inkling that that's what you want that you wanted to be an architect or that you've done interest in drawing before the opportunity yes came. I, I was interested in drawing that was really knocked out of me at grammar school <laughs> but uh, i don't know how much influence it was because i met a friend of the fa you only get advice from a friend of a family you never get advice from your family i um, met a, a friend on a number 12 bus coming up to Westminster. And he said, you know what you want to do? You want to be an architect, you see? And I think that may have tipped the scale. At that point, I'd only ever heard of Christopher Wren. I'd not heard of anything else. I haven't been well-educated, you know. There's nothing wrong with grammar school, said she <laughs> firmly. Um, being another victim of the same pill. The, uh, but then housing, how did you get into housing well, after that? Well, what happened to the LCC Architects Department was that most of the architects were drafted over to work in housing under the valuer. And that's what caused all the row in the turn of the 50s, because the work was awful. You were the first person to swap. Well, you have to explain, because not everybody knows the story, I think. Well, there was a great fuss in the press because the, the value was building poor housing. The press actually won the day, and Leslie Martin and um, Robert Matthew managed to get housing back, as it were, into the architect's department. All those who'd been transferred were transferred back. I was the first one back because I'd made myself such a nuisance in the values department and that you, they got rid of me. And you went to work for Colin Lucas? Yes, I, the first day we worked, I worked with Colin Lucas and Michael Powell. We were the development group of three to start with. Um, but soon a great flood of people came over. Whitfield Lewis joined and became the housing architect after a few months. But it was wonderful working with Michael Powell, and Colin Lucas was a lovely man. This was a Colin Warden Lucas fame. Very quiet man, great shock of sort of ginger hair and suede shoes. Very quiet. But, so you were waiting for him to sort of do something like he'd done in the 30s? Well, he used to just do back-of-envelope sketches, you know. So I remember drawing some of these things out for him at the weekends and that. He, he was very nice quiet man. But then there was this explosion of posh people from the AA. Well, I don't know. I didn't consider them very posh, but uh, one or two of them had umbrellas, I remember. But <laughs> now, the, What was great about the time was that so many young architects coming out of the school just being qualified, and I just qualified in 5051, wanted to work on housing. And this was the most unusual thing. And they, they flooded the uh, department. And uh, it was an extraordinary time of enormous enthusiasm. 
People worked very, very hard. We worked sometimes all the weekends. We actually slept in the office one weekend, you know. I remember sleeping on one of those blow-up lilo things and the drawing pin punctured it up. <laughs> but uh, it was extraordinary for a local authority. I mean, I'm sure in private practice people work all night, but uh, we used to have too. But... Uh, in the local authority in those days, it wasn't. Tell me how you met Bill and John and Stan. They were all at the AA, and they came into the department quite early on. Stan came into the development group, and John and uh, Bill were in another section. And somehow we sort of met up, and I think we were all considered to be troublemakers, so we were put together. And uh, extraordinarily, we were given... Roehampton to do. This is the site of Roehampton. There were four of us. We were put under the guardianship of Colin Lucas, but this was a hundred acres of housing site, which was formerly the site of four houses. Uh, it had a mile-long frontage to Richmond Park and uh, a sort of valley through the middle and uh, 18th century landscape. And this was an extraordinary, when I look back, it was an extraordinary opportunity, you know. But we worked as the nucleus on the team doing this. And did anybody tell you what to do, or did you think...? Not, not really. Um, the planners had done a scheme um, before, but um, we sort of lost that somehow or other. Uh, it had every building on it from one story to six stories. What we did manage to do was to get a, a huge model of the site. This is the only time I've ever, ever, we've ever designed totally on a model. There was a model of the site with all the contours exactly to scale, every tree surveyed into scale, and we could design on that. And the particular part about Roehampton was the landscape. But at the top, there is Heartland House, which is... A, a Georgian house. Mount Clare was uh, another real gem of a building and what we did was to remodel that bit of 18th century landscape so that it was enclosed loosely by high buildings, a group of slab blocks at the top of the hill and two groups of point blocks either side. It made an open-air space which was unique and is what is really binding to the neighbourhood. It's something that sets it apart as a piece of housing. Looking back, sort of 40 years, you know, it is what has made Roehampton have a lasting impact. I'm puzzled because the individual elements, the actual mm. blocks, were they being done by the LCC elsewhere? Well, the LCC and what controlled us rather than seniority, was the idea of type plans. You had to have a type plan uh, in order to uh, get it past the committee. So you used a type plan and then you could design freely, provided the cost limits were there. So that was the main control over what went on. So really it was the placing of the blocks that you had total control over? We, uh, oh, designing the blocks, yes, they're totally different from blocks that were built in London. And we also used uh, our own version quietly of Le Modulor. We worked out a system on this. Because this really is somewhat a homage to Le Corbusier. I mean, we were all completely bemused at that time by Corbusier. Everybody was. And this really was some homage to him. Mm, the, next, the next slide, I think, is going to show that. Yes, that shows the top of the field, one of these fields which we remodelled. We put a copse in the middle so that the space flowed around it. That's been rather ruined since by Wandsworth Council, who've planted a sort of fo forest. It's, it's lost some of the validity, but, of course, at high level, there's still this enclosure. One of the things that about the last, I was for the only time in my life I was allowed to orchestrate a, what's it called, a JCB or whatever it is, to, to move the earth. So I stood up at a point block and told them where to 
dig, you know. It was quite an extraordinary day or two doing that. <laughs> the point, the, the, the slabs are what most people think of as being Corbusian. Yes. How did that happen with the Pilotti and sinking into the side of the hill like that? Well, they were the backcloth to, to the whole building from Richmond Park. After all, there was a view over Richmond Park for 10 miles. Originally, when we first designed it, we had these blocks the other way round. And that's the only thing the ministry called it in, and the inspector turned them round after a year's deliberation. And I don't think it's hurt in any way at all. It's probably helped. But what point did you... The four of you start to think, or some three or four of you, I'm not quite sure how it worked. How did you start to think about going into private practice together? John left fairly early to uh, become a tutor at the AA. Stan Amos left to work with Howard Robertson on the Shell Building. Bill left a bit later on. I stayed uh, until about 19... 59, doing the shopping centre here, but we got the, uh, the, the nod to do the Churchill College competition in 1959, I think it was, and uh, Bill asked me to join him in practice to do it. I was a bit doubtful in a way because, uh, you know, I hadn't got uh, any financial backing it was a long shot if we won. And so I tried to get leave from the LCC for two or three months to do it, and they wouldn't give it to me, so I left. The then housing architect, Kenneth Campbell, was a lovely man. He, did, he said to me, I'll keep your job open for a year if you like. That was more encouraging. So I left, and Bill and I set up the first formal practice to do Churchill College competition. And this is the site layout that we produce, which has been in uh, exhibition recently. It's always fascinated me to know how you conceived this idea. Well, we felt things should be moved on, you see. A new aesthetic could come out, a richer aesthetic could come out of using materials and also exploring the ways that light entered buildings. We were very much interested in that and the skin of buildings in concrete. And of course the actual concrete itself was quite thin, but in order to give a thickness to it, we projected windows out to give reveals that graded light into the buildings. And we were also very concerned with roof lights. But this particular design the fundamental things was that we decided where the entrance should be at this bottom left-hand corner. We decided where the playing field should be. We then made roots, covered roots, cloistered roots, to uh, enclose two courtyards that were different but also identifiable places, unique identifiable places. The thing we always want to do is to make external landscape spaces that are identifiable, are things of their, their own. But the geometry seems to go on to come out even more in the elevations. Yes, indeed. Um, this is a perspective uh, that Barbara Jones, well, we set it up and she coloured it up. Barbara Jones was a mural painter and a great friend of ours. We triangulated roof lights because that was the only way we we hadn't got computers, of course, at those. That was the only way we could determine points in space and make sure that there were no twisted planes in the concrete work. So that there was a series of triangulations on the roof lights to the dining hall and the library, particularly. That, that I think, is the dining hall in the background. Uh, so it was very much a, a matter of particularly relating to light, because after all, the external skin of a building is only concerned with modifying the climate and allowing light to get into the building. Other people were doing this as well, trying to make a richer architecture and not quite knowing which way to go and exploring things. Very much became the um, 
HKPA signature well, in a way. We didn't win this competition, but everybody thought we came second, so our practice was based on losing it. So from this emerged a series of commissions. This is St Anne's at Oxford, and we had a series of college buildings to design. Generally speaking, Bill Howell did the buildings at Cambridge and I did the ones at Oxford. There are exceptions to that because um, uh, Stan Amos did Sydney Sussex at Cambridge. I did an abortive scheme that never got off the ground for the Union Society at Cambridge, which was very, very funny the first time we ever had clients who were younger than ourselves. And this, this St Anne's was the first time I had 15 women as a client, which um, one of whom was Iris Murdoch, if I remember rightly. But um, You had fit into an old setting. Mm. So I should have probably explained that when we set up the practice, we thought it should be a model practice. We had ideas a bit based on architects co-partnership, but we had ideas that we should each lead a, a job and have a backup partner with it, and that um, we should have one job designing, another job in working drawings, and the other job building. And we shouldn't have more than three jobs. Uh, I mean, it was all very utopian, and we also thought that no partner should have more than about seven staff because he couldn't control it and couldn't design it. Uh, so we were very naive in the way we wanted to set up a, a, a practice, uh, but the rough edges of the world soon knocked that off, if I can put it that way. 15 women. <laughs> 15 women, yes. Well, they were marvellous clients, and this is the overall plan that we did form, which I think the press described as a necklace. Um, the buildings of that shape really to avoid uh, straight corridors inside them, but also to enable that freely flowing shape to happen, um, like a necklace, which you can arrange at any angle. We found we could arrange these buildings at any angle we wanted to. Peter Smithson had a sort of word for, for that sort of angle that you couldn't define. He called it sweet. So Didn't you can you do work it with sweet. With the Smithsons at one point. Oh, yes. In the, while we were at the LCC, we, we did the Sydney Opera House together. Our group and Alison Peter Smithson worked together on this. Because I, I think this very, because with you all being similar generation, that there's sort of parallels about the architecture and use of materials. And I wondered what you felt about their work and the experience of working with them. Well, they were, there were always ideas coming out all the time. But it was interesting doing Sydney because there wasn't really much of a brief for Sydney. You had to write it yourself. We spent a lot of time with the Royal Opera House Covent Garden because I had a friend who was the assistant house manager and we wrote a brief from them. We worked in the evenings, best part of a year on it, I think. It was quite a long... It seemed like that, anyway. <laughs> but there were always ideas, but I think as two groups, we were slightly frightened of each other or slightly apprehensive about each other so that we, we got a most marvellous plan and section worked out and we didn't think about the elevations until, or how it looked, till about three days before it went in. And it has been described, it's in the book, uh, it's been described as two pigs bolted back to back. But uh, it was an interesting experience. What, Alison in particular? Yes, I think so. She was wonderful on the, on the drawing board. I think she was absolutely talented to the nth degree. That was my opinion of her. That's where, where she was really at her best, if I can put it like that. Mm. You're the only person who's ever stood up for Alison that I've ever interviewed. Oh. Well, so that was... That was uh, I was telling it how, I, how yeah, it was. Yeah, that's, that's She nice. could be very 
spiteful in a way in how she spoke, but she was extremely talented, I thought. Wonderful. Wonderful lady. Mm. I respect that. Thank you. Not all of this was built, I should explain. If you know Oxford, there's just the two middle ones, two middle ones there, were built, that yeah. were built. But um, they really established the style. But here, they commissioned you because they got, they saw Churchill. Did yeah. you, were you really trying to, did you repeat the elevational ideas? Or, I mean, how did you take well, a theoretical scheme into a real one? Well, yes, they, they wanted a particular size residential building and they had a particular site. They were rather intrigued by the idea of having a lake and they'd already got that vertical building on the right, which was, um, I forget what it was Charles called. Charles Scott, isn't it? Charles Gilbert Scott and a dining hall there and they wanted to make, uh, it seemed obvious to make a tyre a sort of quadrangle there. The last building at the end is uh, 10 stories. We never intended to build that, but Wolfson, who gave the money for the first one, said you must have a high building because land's so expensive in North Oxford. So that was put in into, into the equation. And what was on the lake? The, the little just building a little in the island. Middle. It was a decorative lake, yes. It's interesting, I took it, I remember taking it to the Royal Fine Art Commission and we got back a written reply in the end to say that they liked the scheme very much. That some of the commissioners thought that the high building shouldn't be on the north end of the site, it should be on the south end. Uh, others were happy with it on the north end and yet again there were others who thought it should be in the middle. And yours sort of faithfully. Um, and about a year later, I got a letter that said, uh, would you kindly confirm whether you have complied with the requirements of the Royal Fine Art Commission? Um. So I, I said yes. <laughs> I could equally well have said no. The next slides from St Anne's are Heathrow. This is a scheme that was never completed, never built. Um, and I put it in, I put two schemes that, like most architects, we probably had 50% of our work not built. I put in two schemes that we worked on for two or three years, and one, Heathrop, where we'd started building and were stopped after three, two or three years. I put it in because it was quite interesting. One of the great things about architecture is all the p different people you meet and the different organizations who get into and uh, here you me having 15 women as a client well while this was going on they had an office in Fitzroy Square one day uh, a priest came in it was a Jesuit priest he came into the office and he said uh, uh, we're thinking of building a new university we have a site of 500 acres with an archer mansion in the middle. Although I think Bernini is one of the greatest architects that ever lived, uh, I was driving past St. <laughs> <Dan's. laughs> uh, and can we have some buildings like that? <laughs> so I <laughs> certainly had a sense of humour. But I remember the first day visiting it because... Um, it was a new experience for me, um, partly of Northern Irish Protestant background, going with Bill, who was partly of Welsh nonconformist background. We drove into this long drive uh, of the 500-acre site, which was part of, originally of the Earls of Shrewsbury estate, and we. Um, uh, the first coming in to it is a 19th century landscape and then you turn around and find an 18th century landscape with a ride centred on this Archer house. Uh, it was a Archer mucked up a bit by Waterhouse. But a and classic new university campus in having the old building and then 500 acres. 
And then what did you have for you asked well, to do? I remember the first time arriving there, which was quite funny, was we drove up to this, uh, the front of the building, which had sort of steps like Blenheim Palace. And uh, there was nobody about at all. And we walked up the steps, we got to the top of the steps and the doors flung open. And the rector said, come in, this is one hell of a place. <laughs> said, and uh, so we were brought in uh, and given tea. And he said, well, before we start, um, you must come and watch a rugby match. This is in the middle of the Cotswolds. Uh, <laughs> it was, come and watch a rugby match where the theologians are playing the philosophers. So we went, so we went out over the fields, and there it was there was this rugby match going on. There were about a group of about thirty Jesuits on the side with trombones and other brass <laughs> instruments. I've never seen such a dirty game of rugby in my life, and I thought, you know, if someone from Mars could drop here, they'd wonder what on earth was happening in the middle of the Cotswolds, and. And then I looked over the hedge at the back of the field, and there was an elephant. They'd let the field to Billy Smart Circus. Mm. That was the reason. But I worked oh, on. <laughs> yes, this is this is St Anne's projected balconies, and the cladding is overlaps so that you don't get butt joints. So it's much easier joint to make and to deal with um, tolerances. And did anybody, because I really do associate your practice with these large precast panels, and was that something that you really championed? Well, it was the fact that with, with concrete you can make your own scale, and uh, we were very interested in that. Therefore, you can give a new dimension to the buildings, and you can mod modulate between one building and the next. That's for the two buildings together around a sort of landscaped lawn. And that's the gatehouse which we built a little later on. We did it in stone. How we did it for the money, I don't know. But it, it isn't where we'd originally wanted to put the gatehouse. They had suddenly got some money from the University Grants Committee, um, £36,000, and I think we built about 29 study bedrooms and a basement and a caretaker's flat for that, <laughs> faced in stone. I don't know how we did it. Uh, we negotiated it with the local builder. It was very cheaply done. As you know, Colvin... This was a, a dear great man controversial listing case, and its great supporter was Howard Colvin, who insisted on my photographing him in front of it. So off it went to the minister, with Colvin standing proud in front of it, and it was turned down. <laughs> but he liked it. Somebody was going to demolish it recently. I won't say who. Um, but it hasn't it, it happened. Has, no, he, he stopped it. That's the site of Heathrop, you know, from the bottom there is the entrance I talked about and the ride above. We designed this not as a compact bit of university, but as a series of colleges, each in their own landscaped part, which was quite interesting. They called them houses. We designed a house from philosophers, one for theologians, a house for the nuns of the Holy Child Jesus. And the, the nuns were very interesting to, to work with too. This was a whole new dimension in my life. And they well, were the I first... Mean, I was Murdoch and Jesuits, you now get the nuns. You now get the nuns, yes. It's interesting how, how the clients in those days... I mean, later on, we're going to have more local authority and government clients. and Not quite as colourful, although some of them are. But these were an extraordinary range of, of people. But it was rather sad that uh, nothing came of it. That was the philosopher's house. It was more formal because they made the point that they liked to process a lot of the time. So we gave them corridors down which they could... Is that what they're having deep thoughts? Or... <laughs> well, yes, uh, I don't know. <laughs>
did hip hop start to bring out different ideas in the prep that you were? Yes, we were. Hip-hop? We were playing. We were playing. Uh, I think you noticed this with diagonals and octagonals. Um, uh, we found that, that we could change directions simply and plan a lot of things freely that way. And you'll find in a lot of our buildings we have not only octagonals, but we have rectangles with chopped off corners and we use the diagonal. And that goes through quite a lot of our work. Um, But the idea of these colleges were they were in their own little bit of landscape, which they wanted. They wanted to retreat to their own house and their own order. Um, but be part of the main university. And did any of those ideas carry on into your next work, into St Anthony's? Yes, well, uh, come back to St Anthony's because we took, go back a few years, in about 1961, I think, we we did a competition uh, for St Anthony's uh, with uh, um, Cubits and which we won, and we designed a whole college. This is a whole new Oxford graduate college. Oh, by the way, that, that's, that's the nun's house at oh, Heathrow. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I Why were they difficult clients? They were lovely clients. They were absolutely extraordinary clients because they had an... They were the most organised I've ever come across because they had a nun... They had a nun architect, they had a nun plumber, a non-electrician, a non-you know, kitchen consultant. They had, every specialist they had, all on their finance side of it and all the rest of it. And uh, I used to go to meetings with the uh, provincial. She was a provincial, and she would sort of clap her hands, and in came the plumber nun, you know, to tell you where to put the stopcocks and that sort of thing. Uh, it was wonderful. But they were very enthusiastic, and they were the first off the ground to start building. And this this building got up to about the ground floor level before it was stopped. They actually stopped it once work had started. Yes, yes, it was. No, it, it came from the Vatican actually. <laughs> Same thing there. <laughs> Probably it was God via the Vatican, but the. Reason given was, and I have no reason to doubt it, was it was still the age-old argument as to whether you train your priests in in the country away from the problems, or or in the town where the real problems are. It's like whether you train your your troops in the front line, or or in um, uh, you know a quiet part of the country. This is an age-old argument that they have. The real answer to it is you have to do both. But they all came back and uh, uh, to London, and they've joined up with London University. And the nuns, I think, still have their building in Cavendish Square. They were the first people to have that Epstein. They, they actually commissioned it, I believe, I between the two buildings. Yeah, I know what you mean. You yeah. T- yeah. yeah. Still, we digress because we were going on. No, this is my favourite, so... Well, it was really a very full scheme, a complete college, but there wasn't enough money for it, you know, in those days. We actually got planning permission within about three weeks for it. You know, it was extraordinary. St. Anthony's was a new foundation um, founded by a Middle East... The, well, in the will, I think, of a Middle East... Now, before he died, he was called Anton Bess, and he was a Middle Eastern ship owner who employed, had often employed Oxford graduates in his office and was rather impressed with them. So he went to sort of the Sorbonne in Paris, and the story goes he asked them if they could build a college on Oxford lines... And they uh, gave him short shrift, so he flew over to Oxford and uh, gave them, I think, a million and a half in those days. The university, I think, filched some of it before it got to the college, but there wasn't enough money to build this building and run it as well in those days. It doesn't sound a lot of money today, but it was quite a lot of money then. So that that bit the dust, the first scheme, 
But they came back to us about four years later, and there's the site plan in the middle there. It's that one there, which is the dining hall and common room block. On the right is the old convent building, which was their main building at that time. They had the whole of the island site there. And so we were asked to build a dining room block in the context of an overall plan which had the convent building, then a teaching and lecture room block, then coming up left the dining hall, and then there was a residential block across the top there. Uh, these buildings were linked up by covered ways, but we always felt, and we did this at St Anne's too, that every time we did a building we didn't have sort of brick-toothed ends on the end. They were complete buildings in themselves that could link on to the next building. So this was an, uh, an extraordinary building. We have uh, James Sutherland here, I think, who worked uh, with I Alan I should point Baxter. out that Stan Amos is here now as well. Hi, Stan. Oh, that's good. Stan's all right. Nice. I could say quite a lot about this building because although it's in some ways watered-down version of the sort of roof lighting ideas, it was more controlled and obviously not quite so expensive. But we started the idea of this with the positioning of the dining hall at first floor level with the kitchen the other side, the dining hall being double height, gallery, then two common rooms the other side. And we decided to put a, uh, a diagrid over them and it was more economic to have one, one design of diagrid for the three of them. So the other diagrid was petitioned to make the common rooms. This time I was rather intrigued, bemused if you like, with the idea of geometrical systems and uh, this is entirely based on using a geometric system. I think I described it once as emerging from the droppings of Kahn, really, that uh, he said he should distinguish between laws and rules, laws being the laws of nature, God, and rules being the rules that are set up to design a building. And in this case, I took that to an extreme degree uh, and even wrote the rules out. Because we have a diagrid over it, the whole building is based on an octagonal column. And this is an octagonal column with six-inch facets, which meant that every beam that came in was six inches wide on the diagonal or on the orthogonal. We got the size of the column wrong in the first place and it wouldn't work. And I drove James Sutherland and Adam Baxter mad with this, and they've never forgiven me for it. <laughs> but uh, that generated the whole structure of the whole building, which uh, was a precast concrete structure inside. It was a marvelous place to use precast concrete because there was no weathering problems, and you could use granite and uh, in the aggregate and sparkling sands, and. Uh, you had to decide, of course, then, what size everything was. This was one of the ways of doing it. The other way, uh, in order to give each part of it a reference to the next part, which is a very enduring principle of architecture. It starts with Vitruvius, doesn't it, saying this, and, and people like Viollet le duc in, in that context, you can see that the diagrids came in in these spanner-like objects, uh, they were post-tensioned to form the roof and the roof lights. The beams came in at, at right angles. The cladding was distanced away on the diagonal by small glass strips. And on the ground floor, there were cruciform heads to the columns, which made a structured shapes in the buttery and the rest oh, of it. I remember you describing it to me as Gothic. And this puzzled me, and it puzzled Colvin, who never liked, this was the building he didn't like. Your sense of history always intrigued me. 
Well, he said that because um, because of the way the diagram worked, and there was a peripheral columns round it. There was a column in the middle of the entrance. And he lived across the road, I should say. He explain. lived across the road, and he said this was against classical principles. But I said that it conforms with nearly every uh, cathedral in the country, of <laughs> Gothic cathedral. They always have a column in the middle of the entrance. But we haven't got the entrance here. But Chauvin County Casino in the book says he couldn't find the entrance. But the point is that the covered way linking to that entrance was never built, of course. Mm. But nobody's ever found any problem finding the way into it. We first met because James Sutherland introduced John to English heritage as the person who could explain elevational plumbing. <laughs> Do you want me to explain? Um, if it would interest our audience, yes, please, because <laughs> I found the concept fascinating. Well, there were a few of us thinking about it. I mean, Lasden, I think, was the first that I know did any of it uh, on those flats overlooking Green Park. This is so that you don't allow rain to wash down the building and disfigure it. You take the rain back into the building and use plumbing to get rid of it. And that's what happens here with these projected windows. We gave this windows because um, although we got roof lights, we decided that, like most college dining rooms, they are introspective that we wouldn't destroy the introspective nature of the dining room, but we'd give them views out. So that, again, gave these graded light views out. But we had stopped the rain washing over these units, and the rain goes back into a gutter, which ejects with a lead pipe between the units. I think Lasden also tried it at East Anglia, I don't know whether it worked there, but he didn't have the expensive materials that he should have had. Yes, that's the interior of the dining hall. And we designed the furniture in the dining hall as well. We went on to do some conversion work in the convent, uh, but we never did the next scheme. I well, think some, I wanted to yes. tell you about it, that uh, <laughs> uh, there was some money came up for the residential building, because they had various studies around the world, one of the links they had was with South America. And uh, one Oscar Nehmeyer said, I'll do a scheme for nothing to St. Anthony's. So we were sort of supplanted. I was shown the scheme um, because it was five postcards and little sketches on it. On the site where we got 80 study bedrooms, he got about 15, I think. They were single story on half-height pilotti and had sort of circular holes in the roof for a sort of terrace. And that was it. So then they had to get somebody to do the working drawings. And we said no. So they went to various people. It went to Peter Smithson. And he said no. In the end, they got an Oxford partnership to do the working drawings, and they did the working drawings, they went out to tender, and it came out back about three times as expensive as the money they had. You know, I was rather aggrieved, but I think I told you that I met, I was going out to Madrid on one Sunday, I was going to a conference or other that I was doing something at, and um, found myself sitting next to the warden, who'd... Uh, who'd organised this supplanting, and he apologised to me, albeit at 3,000 feet, whether he'd have done it at 30,000 feet, whether he'd have done it at ground level, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, so, um, although Namar is in the news these days and much revered, he's not my not favourite. <laughs> and not always practical. But meanwhile, I think your sense of history comes out with the Cambridge job at Downing. Yes, so this, I think, is the best building of HKPA, and this is Bill Howe's, almost totally Bill Howe. I worked a little bit on it, and I think Roy Murphy worked on it as well. It's a marvellous little gem of a garden room 
which is very complicated in its construction. I remember I took it to the Royal Fine Art Commission. It was a rectangular then, and Leslie Martin said it should be square. And I think there's only a few times when I agreed that <laughs> things should be square. <laughs> so it is square. It sits next to this, this is Wilkins Dining Hall, which we also remodeled and decorated. But I think you are after the historic idea in the combination room, which was a roof light, which was light in itself. It's a pity we haven't got a slide of that. It's a shaped roof light that does that and that. It's made of concrete. It weighed about a ton. And the idea of having a roof light, which is light in itself, lighter than the light that it's pushing through, Bill got from the lantern at Ely Cathedral, I think, or if anything else, you know. It, it's held up by the outer columns in the way that, that there is an outer column outside the building and an inner column and a beam across, well, a cantilever across the top, rather like a gibbet. So there's a series of gibbets all the way around, which means that the outside column's intention, so if ever they try to do do anything. <laughs> it's, uh, I hope they hope they'll never it. cut one of the columns because the building will go up in the air, I think, <laughs> or something similar. And it has this idea of re somehow reflecting the, the Wilkins pediment. It doesn't do it actually, but there's a full flavour of it. And then Reading was you and Stan, I think. Yes. Um, I did the Wells Hall, which is a new college, residential college, it starts in a suburban road with two-storey houses, so it's at the gatehouse it's two storeys, two and three storeys, and it slopes away to the north, the la land does, so that with a flat roof level it becomes six storeys at the bottom of the hill, as it were. But it's a freely shaped, again trying to make unique spaces between buildings, with dining hall at the end there. And using brick for the first this time. This is brick, yes. This is a red brick university, and this had to be built to the same as UGC cost limits, although they weren't providing the money. It was the College of Estate Management. You did the college building. I did the college, and this one is Stan Amos, ah. who is here. He was the lead partner on this. I haven't got a plan of it, but it is in the centre of the campus at Reading University. It creates a new spine, as it were, over the spine road. And it actually pulls that campus together beautifully. And it's done in precast concrete with slightly pink coloured, mm, in deference to the red brick university. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, uh, it's, it, it's, it's the Faculty of Urban and Regional Studies. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting building. It's, we have broken down the expression of it. We see no reason why, because a building is a certain size, it has to be expressed as that size. We tried to break it down and relate it round the trees in the space That's next gloriously to it. serrated, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And then Stan went on to the big to job. To do this one. Now, this was... Could I sort of just break at this point and say that this marks a, a sort of almost change in the practice. Kate has mentioned that we had this awful tragedy, first of all with John Killick, who had multiple sclerosis. He died in 1972, and Bill Hull was terribly killed in a car crash in 1974. That left Stan and I carrying on the practice. About that same time, probably a year or two, about 1972 or three, we had this commission, which was larger than anything else we've ever had. How did you cope with that sudden imbalance well, of smaller numbers and bigger jobs? Well, those two things totally altered sort of balance in the practice. But it was probably good for us. And this was a remarkable <coughs> scheme which Stan headed up and we had a new partner called Steve Osgood who worked on it. There was a fleet maintenance space 
and the submarine refit complex. The submarine, uh, I mean, it was most extraordinary when you think of it. it. It started as a building about 60 or 70 feet below water level, housed two nuclear submarines, <laughs> had workshops either side, and then uh, up towards ground level, you can see then there's a, an eight or nine story block. And there's also the largest crane, what was then the largest crane in Europe on top. Uh, I'm looking at the next image, which is magnificent of that. Yeah, all right. Yes. It's a most extraordinary building. And, uh, of course, it lasted, it, uh, I think, to about 19, the late 70s. It required an enormous amount of research. And, of course, not a lot of that was at use for the next job. Uh, we oh, had this well, characteristic of large jobs which were unique. Meanwhile, there's one little one that sneaks in, which is the Albany Empire. Oh, yes. Albany. Yeah, so this was a totally different, you know, and, uh, as I say, and now for something different. This was a social building in Deptford on one side of a street market with two-storey houses the other side. It was an old charity that started at the turn of the century to deal with poverty in, in Deptford and particularly to deal with women's problems in Deptford because Deptford traditionally was a huge sort of shipbuilding and dock area. And by the end of the 19th century, things were in a bad way, really. The... Uh, in the 19th century, the sort of average age of a docker was, before he died, was in the mid-30s. And he usually left a widow with ten children. And therefore the reforms that made the workhouse, it's a remarkable sort of charity. It was set up with the, the uh, same content. This is a new building replacing their old building, which was demolished for road widening uh, in about 1979. And um, it has craft rooms in it. It has a, a nursery block, has an alternative education unit, and it has a series of what we called shops, which were used for charities and could be approached from the outside or the inside. So it's a rather defensive building, but. What you can't see from that in the section is where those red ends of the rafters are, are gla is glazing. And the idea was that at night when those craft rooms at the first floor were working, it would light up the whole area and you would be able to see in and out. But it also, the building also houses a performing space, which... Uh, Right? This, <laughs> no, it's a lovely image coming it's, up. It is this, this drawing. Um, they wanted a performing space without a fixed stage. They put the stage where they like, but they wanted to uh, have food while while it was going on in the gallery. We were asked, really, uh, the brief sort of said, uh, we wanted a, a cross between Ronnie Scott's and the Working Men's Club. And it's just that point when cabaret became a part of comedy and all that that came into the London social scene. Mm. It yeah. was brilliant in the early 80s. I loved coming here. Yes, it made the shape with, with this steel cage. I, I threatened to sing She Was Only a Bird in a Gilded Cage at the opening, but they wouldn't let me. <laughs> Incidentally, the chairs, I think, came from Chicago. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, happened. Your but next slide is very, very geometrical. Could I just say that th this was ruined because uh, later on there was no money and uh, Lewisham let it out to a nightclub and they painted it all red. And in the last few years I've been back as a consultant putting it right with an architect and uh, the National Theatre have taken this over for educational purposes and they do. I thought you'd be interested in that. I think I only knew it when it was red, sadly. <laughs> well, this is 
We had this history of these large buildings, and this was the Hall of Justice in Trinidad and Tobago, which we won in, or was the result of a comp international competition. It was an extraordinary building. It had 28 law courts in it. Why I was so intrigued with it, we'd, we'd had a history of doing some courts buildings, and I, I'd done an abortive scheme in the early 70s for Medway Magistrates Court. We did eventually build a lower one. We designed a multi-story one because we had such a small site. We had to get a bigger site to eventually build it. But we had the idea of courts on courts. And this showed us how we could use the discrete circulation that is necessary in these courthouses. There's a discrete circulation of the public, um, the, those in custody, the jury, and the judges, all of whom meet up only in the courtroom. You can see that the courts here are on the outside of the court hall. This is first floor level. What is yellow is a public space, a huge public space with two stairs going through it. And the courts are paired so that this vertical circulation, separate lifts for uh, those in custody and for the judges and those that never the twain shall meet, you know. And it works also for the escape from the building, you know. You can see that the courts themselves are the architectural expression of the building. It's faced with very large panels of polymer concrete, which I think has Swedish granite or Swedish marble. There is a bit of pollution in Port of Spain. I think this has affected it a bit. But I haven't seen it in that since. But it was finished in 1985. The cladding is very interesting because it's, uh, it's separated away from the building by about 10 inches. It's just an airspace behind, and it shades it. And uh, the building itself is fairly massive concrete. And the interesting thing is I understand that the air conditioning which they insisted on doesn't need to be operated to anything like the extent that they thought it should, you know, because it's shaded. Mm. Um, we did at one time have an idea of using the staircases to provide natural ventilation, but they, they did want good, they said, American air conditioning. And the building is also at the highest level of seismic defense, <laughs> although they've never had an earthquake as far well as I understand it. <laughs> they have to have all these trappings of modern living. And it's got a great hall. They don't always dress up like that. That was at the opening, I think. It's rather smart, though, isn't it? Inside, it has an auditorium, really, for five or 600 people, called the um, Convocation Hall. So that's below the main court hall. That's the main court hall. That's Warrington Crown Court, which is um, the built version of the drawing at the back of the room. It's a brick building. It had to be... That was part of the requirement that it should be a brick building. It's in the context of being at the side of a town hall by James Gibbs. One of the things we did was to make two avenues of trees at which this entrance is on the corner of, of it. And it's next to a parkland, which is quite nice. I mean, it is landscape that helps this building a lot. That's inside. I haven't really spoken a lot about structured interiors, but really that is an element of our work that comes through everything. Mm. This, and this has structured um, trusses on the diagonal using, again, timber and compression and steel intention, which is what happens in most of our, I'm rushing through. And this is the last building you're going to be plagued with, which uh, at the beginning of the 90s, this is a building for a Japanese college in Canterbury called Chilsa College. Again, it is on a steeply smoking, well, not steeply, but a very sloping site. 
looking towards the cathedral at Canterbury, we decided that the buildings should sort of sit into the hill. We never liked our buildings. I mean, Bill always used the expression, buildings shouldn't stick out like a sore thumb. I think you'd probably think they're one or two sore thumbs today, but you never know. But this comes out of the hillside. There is a, a small quadrangle with covered circulation with the teaching rooms and the dining hall and a lecture hall. Where's got your diagonal? The diagonal is most important because we decided that although all the rooms could have a view of the cathedral, that would be a wrong thing to do. It would be much better for every space between the buildings to be um, overlooked, to have windows on it, to make it no dead spaces in the landscape. So we did that and we made a diagonal route through the courtyard out to this square platform there where you could see the cathedral through a gap in the trees around the site. We made the mistake of planting the trees early so that we could cut a gap. And of course, what you don't realize is that planning rules and that enable you to build trees but not cut them down. So we've never cut the gap. <coughs> it's, uh, that is a, a traditional way of doing certain parts of the landscape. That's the dining hall, the end of the dining hall. And I, I will say that we had this to make capital out of this because the planners wanted a building to look Japanese, to be Japanese, and the Japanese wanted an English college. So they were a bit at loggerheads on this, and we capitalized on that and did a building which we thought had a sort of flavor of Japanese, but was really rather English, in the sense that it was eccentric. That's a view of the students' common room, the library on the left, and the dining hall in the middle. And that's the steelwork supporting the common room block. This is the courtyard. It's a small-scale courtyard, very intimate, and um, has a nice sort of quiet calmness to it, I think. And there's this crazy side elevation, which has a Japanese flavor. We had an exhibition of it in 2000. And the Japanese made this poster because they thought because we used, always used as found materials inside, brick inside, all the rest. Uh, they thought it was inside out, so they called the exhibition Outside In. That's a view of the students' common room, with, I think, Mark Major is here. He designed the light fittings in true Japanese style. And that's the dining hall, again, using this same sort of structured idea of steel and timber. And this is the last slide, just to say that really buildings only come to life when people are in them, and it's better when they're happy, and they're having a happy time. John, it's been such a pleasure working with you. I've really enjoyed it, and I'm okay. sorry to rush you. Sorry I've Thank gone you on too all long. for coming. No, no, but I think they get a drink. And we can ask, answer any questions over the drink. Is that allowed? <laughs>